0: Heavenly Father, we thank you once again, as has been mentioned uh, several times already. We thank you for what we celebrate today, and that is the uh, mothers and motherly figures in our lives and how you guided them and gifted them uh, to do that incredibly difficult job and uh, rely on your strength to do it. You are a loving and good God. We thank you for giving us your word that reveals who you are and your heart and what you expect of our lives. I pray that you would open our eyes, open our ears, open our hearts uh, to hear and see what you have for us this morning, that your seeds of truth may be buried deep within us, and that they would uh, change something about our lives today. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. amen. We've all heard of daredevils like evil Knievel. Uh, and their death-defying stunts. But here are some daredevils uh, you may not have heard of before from History.com. The first one is Sam Patch. He is known as America's first daredevil and was nicknamed the Jersey Jumper when he leapt from the top of New Jersey's own Passaic Falls in 1827. He was also famous for making a 90-foot leap Uh, from a ship's mast into the Hudson River at Hoboken, New Jersey, and most famously for jumping off of a makeshift platform over the edge of Niagara Falls and surviving the 120-foot drop into the water below with nothing. This is the early 1800s. He just jumped off and hoped that he made it. Patch had a pet bear that would also make the same jumps that Patch did. Seems like the kind of guy you want to hang out with, right? <laughs> Clem Sohn was known in the 1930s as Birdman for jumping out of planes 15,000 feet from the ground. With a homemade suit, he made out of metal rods and canvas sails. Sone would often tie a sack of flour to himself and open it just before he jumped, creating a trail for people to see. It seems like the first comic book issue of Batman, which came out in 1939, maybe borrowed a little bit from Birdman's stunts. And Bessie Coleman, nicknamed Brave Bessie and Queen Bess, was the first African-American woman in the world, in the world, to become a licensed pilot in 1921. Coleman would perform technical maneuvers to outfly her fellow aviators and loop-de-loops and tailspins to make the crowds go wild. One time when she was flying a plane that a professional parachutist was supposed to jump out of, when the parachutist refused to jump, Coleman handed over the controls of the plane to her co-pilot, put on a parachute, walked out on the wing of the plane, and jumped herself. Coleman landed in the middle of the onlooking crowd amid raucous cheers. As impressive as these all are, all of these people still had to work within the framework of natural laws, and they all eventually and sadly met their early demises due to these natural laws. But Jesus does something that we're taking a look at today that not only was extreme but was well outside of natural laws. And we'll see why he did it, what he was getting at by doing it, and what he's telling us today through it. When we ended our message last week, Jesus had performed the impossible miracle of feeding upwards of 20,000 people with only five loaves of bread and two fish. In contrast to Jesus' previous conversation with the Pharisees, in which they flat out refused to see Jesus as the Messiah prophesied throughout Moses' writings, the crowd that Jesus had just fed clearly saw him as the prophet that Moses had prophesied would be like him and that he would know God face to face. But beyond that recognition, everything else the crowd believed Jesus to be as the Messianic prophet was a misunderstanding. I touched on this last week, and we see this misunderstanding in the first verse of this morning's passage. So, if you brought your Bible with you today... Please turn to John chapter 6, we're going to be starting in verse 15. If you didn't, that's okay, there should be one located in the pew in front of you. Uh, You can also turn to John 6, 15, or look this up on your favorite Bible app on your smartphone. John chapter 6, verse 15, we read this. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. See, in the crowd's mind, they thought that all the prophecies given in in the prophets like Isaiah talking about a renewed kingdom in Israel in a time of abundance, peace and prosperity were to take place at that point. Once they saw Jesus do what he just did, make the possible out of the undeniably impossible, that sealed it for the crowd that Jesus was indeed the prophesied Messiah. This man was the messianic king who was going to establish that messianic kingdom and therefore was going to drive out those oppressive Romans in order to do it. As such, they were going to do everything they could do to make that happen right then and there. But Jesus knew it wasn't time for that yet. He knew that he would make all of those prophecies about an eternal kingdom happen someday, but his time on earth that first time around was not that purpose. His purpose that first time around was to reveal the truth about the kingdom of heaven who would be eligible to enter that kingdom, how they could enter that kingdom, and then pay for the entrance into that kingdom with his death and resurrection. And so Jesus escaped all of that and went back up on the hillside by himself to pray. Mark gives us a bit more information about what sets up for the main story we're talking about today. And we read Mark's account of this and we read immediately after this, Jesus insisted that his disciples get back into the boat and head across the lake to Bethsaida while he sent the people home. As one biblical scholar pointed out, Jesus could tell the rising messianic fervor in the crowd and knew that his disciples would join right in to the potential push to forcibly make him their king. So as he can see the crowd's excitement start to swell, he makes his disciples get into the boat and make their way to Bethsaida to escape all of that. Then Jesus told the crowd to go back home, to to go back to their homes. Apparently, where they were on this hillside was a little ways from Bethsaida itself. Jesus wanted his disciples to escape the crowd's enthusiasm and get away from where they landed the boat over to the village of Bethsaida. We can gather from John that Bethsaida was just supposed to be the jumping off point to then end up back in Capernaum. So as we can surmise by piecing the Gospels together that the disciples then leave Bethsaida and then they start crossing over the northern tip of the Sea of Galilee back to Capernaum. That it was Jesus' command for them to go to Bethsaida and then Capernaum at that point to escape the crowd while he took the time to disperse them explains why the disciples are crossing the sea in the dark And without Jesus. So all of this is setting up for the main story that we're talking about today. That brings us to our next verses. Verses 16 through 17. Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. And we know why now. And after getting into a boat, they started to cross the sea to Capernaum. It had already become dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. We know why Jesus had not yet come to them. Jesus had not yet come to them because, as Mark tells us, after telling everyone goodbye, he went up into the hills by himself to pray. Similar to the miraculous multiplication of the bread and fish to feed 20,000 people, Jesus was testing and stretching the disciples' faith again. Jesus may have even been praying for them as he's up on the hill and what he knew was coming and what he would soon watch unfold from the top of the hill. Verse 18, this is what happens. The sea began to be stirred up because a strong wind was blowing. The Sea of Galilee is known to have strong storms come out of nowhere. According to biblical scholarship, as soon as the sun goes down, the wind starts kicking up. But that's somewhat normal, What Mark and John will describe is an incredibly strong storm. There's this natural phenomenon that happens in that area where cooler air from the Mediterranean Sea to the west starts blowing east, magnifies by being funneled through valleys in western Palestine, then slams into the warm air surrounding the Sea of Galilee. And that's what creates these incredibly strong storms. At some point later that evening, the disciples start making their way across the northern tip of the Sea of Galilee, when all of a sudden, one of these massive windstorms comes out of nowhere. The waves are crashing against the boat, and the crushing wind is unrelenting. According to Mark, Late that night, the disciples were in their boat in the middle of the lake, and Jesus was still alone on land. He saw that they were in serious trouble, rowing hard and struggling against the wind and the waves. At least four out of the twelve disciples were fishermen and had undoubtedly battled against these types of storms before. However, I wonder if they had ever fought against a storm as strong as this one, by themselves this certainly wasn't the first time they had encountered this type of storm before either back in mark chapter 4 the disciples were in the boat on the sea of galilee when a similar storm kicked up and jesus was asleep in the boat you remember that story the disciples were screaming at jesus and demanding whether he cared about them that cared if they all drowned or not Jesus calmed the storm that day with nothing other than his voice. But here the disciples are, I want you to picture this, here the disciples are once again in a terrifying storm, but what's the major difference this time? Who's not with them? Jesus isn't with them. He's up on the hillside, praying and watching what they're going through. For us, right now, where is Jesus? Okay, (laughs) some of you who who are thinking, I didn't know I was going to be answering questions today or else I would have had more coffee. He's up in, he's in heaven right now at the right hand of God doing exactly for us today what he was doing for his disciples back at this experience we're talking about this morning. Paul tells us, who then will condemn us? No one for Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us, and he is sitting at the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for us. Other versions use the word interceding for us. Day and night, right now, while watching us go through the raging storms of life, Jesus is talking to God the Father on our behalf. Interceding for us. Pleading for his mercy to be upon us and working with him to work miracles, bring safety and protection, pour out healing, and give unexplainable provision. Not only do we know that Jesus is doing that right now for us, but we know that right now, uh, but we know he's doing it having lived a human life, having suffered pain, exhaustion, hunger, thirst, and homelessness. Understanding human thoughts and feelings. Dealing with human temptations. And knowing full well human circumstances. The writer of Hebrews tells us this. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses. For he faced all the same testings we do. Yet he did not sin. So what what does that mean for us? Let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. That is a promise. And it's because Jesus is interceding for us right now and knows everything that we're going through. We have been given so much spiritual treasure as God's children. If you have Jesus... You have everything you could possibly desire or need spiritually and you don't need to go looking for it anywhere else in new ageism, Buddhism, attracting good energy, using crystals, casting spells or becoming one with nature or the universe. Not only do we have the third person of the Trinity, God himself, literally indwelling us and making a home within us, empowering us, reminding us we are children of God, and filling us with God's peace, love, hope, and joy, but we also have Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, pleading with God the Father to act in mercy towards us according to his plan. So just as Jesus is doing right now during our raging storms, Jesus was watching and pleading with his father for his disciples as he sees their struggles and their very real danger in the middle of this raging storm. He can see that there is real danger that they could die from this as a result. They have been rowing for hours and are at the point of exhaustion. They don't know when this storm will end or if it will be the end of their lives. But Jesus knows when this storm will end. It will end when he commands it to end and not a second sooner. Mark tells us that at this point, it's three o'clock in the morning. Where did we leave the disciples? In the evening, when the sun first went down. Now it's three o'clock in the morning. Like I said, the disciples have been rowing for hours. And John tells us that they've managed to row the equivalent of three or four miles over the course of these several hours, battling against the crushing wind and crashing waves, have been blown adrift by that wind and those waves, and they've they've ended up in the middle of the lake. It's at that point, at three in the morning, while the disciples are exhausted in the middle of the sea and having no clue what they're going to do to save themselves, that something extreme happens. And as we opened our time with, something that's completely outside of the laws of nature. Verse 19. Then when they had rowed about three or four miles they see they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat and they were frightened. I'm sure the disciples had been frightened by the storm, but I even wonder if they'd given up at this point. Now, their fear has been renewed by seeing this ghostly figure walking towards them on top of the waves. Mark tells us that they thought Jesus was a ghost, for that was the only possibility they could think of to explain what they were watching happening right before their very eyes. The Jewish rabbis didn't teach the existence of ghosts, and neither would the New Testament. Both taught that the soul was separated from the body at the point of death with the souls of both the righteous and wicked being separated from their bodies and going to separate places until the resurrection of those bodies. But the belief in ghosts back then was much like it is today, a popular cultural belief that doesn't find any evidence in the Bible. As an aside, I'm going to go down a little bit of a rabbit trail here, For us as believers in Jesus today, we shouldn't have anything to do with ghosts, people who hunt for ghosts, or people who claim they can speak to the dead. Like I already mentioned, the Bible teaches that when people die, their souls immediately go to one of two places either heaven or a place of torture called hell or Hades. There's no such thing as purgatory, no such thing as limbo, and no in between. That's a belief based on misunderstanding and misinterpretation of a writing that's not even considered a part of the official word of God. So, I know what some of you are thinking. What are the apparitions that people see, catch on camera, or communicate with? Well, it's really very simple. Whose entire purpose and goal is to get people so distracted by other spiritual things like ghosts, otherworldly beings, paganism, spells, or the occult, so that they're not even thinking about the gospel of Jesus, let alone seeking after it? Whose entire purpose is that? Satan. And a myriad of fallen angels that do his bidding. So what actually are what people claim to be ghosts? Demons in disguise. That's why we are to stay as far away from any of that as possible. But just as it's a popular cultural belief today, the disciples thought that what was walking towards them was in fact a ghost. That thought makes them even more terrified. They're thinking now, great, Not only does it look like we're going to die because of this storm, but now we're going to be tortured by this ghost walking towards us right before we do die by this storm. What in the world is even happening to us right now? Hashtag, I can't even. (laughs) Talk about compounding terror upon terror and the threat of impending death. Mark tells us that Jesus intended on passing by the disciples. Now, why in the world would that have been Jesus' intention? Knowing everything that the disciples were going through and seeing the terror on their faces, that seems pretty cruel, doesn't it? As one biblical scholar noted, Jesus was going to pass by the disciples in order to give yet another evidence of his deity. Not to be cruel towards them, to give another evidence of his deity. Why is this? There are several instances in the Old Testament when God was said to pass by different individuals when he was said to appear to them. That Hebrew word was translated into the same Greek word in Mark for pass by, when Jewish scholarship translated the Hebrew scriptures into the Greek language, also known as the Septuagint, about a couple of hundred years before the birth of Jesus. That's the very same meaning that Jesus was intending on displaying to the disciples as he meant to pass by them. But John tells us that Jesus accomplishes that same intention with another action instead. Instead of showing it, Jesus says it. Here's what I mean. As Jesus gets closer to the boat, we read this. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. As pointed out by one biblical scholar, the words translated into the English as it is I is actually the phrase I am in the Greek. I am. Jesus gets the same point across. He is the same name that God gives himself to Moses at the burning bush. As such, he is the same God. Not only because he was able to walk On the waves of the sea, because he was none other than I am, or God. But as God, the very next words he declares hold all the weight in the world in the disciples' current terrifying situation, and are words that as God, he can back up. Do not be afraid. Immediately upon saying those words, Jesus, as God, backed them up. Verse 21, so they were willing to receive him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. The disciples recognized Jesus right away as soon as they heard him say these words and let him into the boat. Jesus didn't need to get in the boat. He could have just kept walking on the water all the way to Capernaum. But Jesus wants to join his disciples to put the finishing touches on this, on this miracle and display his deity to them. Mark tells us that upon, immediately upon getting into the boat, the storm stops right away. The previous time Jesus calmed the storm, he said a few words. This time, he doesn't even say anything but instantly the storm stopped at the same exact time Jesus got into the boat. Not only that, but John tells us that the disciples blinked and they were immediately at the shore. You might think this is random and wonder why Jesus did this, according to John, but think about it. This was just a simple act of mercy on Jesus' part, as the disciples were beyond exhaustion and probably couldn't even lift their arms let alone row and oar at that point. So Jesus just caused them to miraculously and immediately end up on shore. The plan was to end up at Capernaum, but according to Mark, Jesus took them to Gennesaret instead. Again, here's my shameless plug. Sit more forward so you can see this. All right, there's the Sea of Galilee up here. Here are the places we've been talking about. We've got Bethsaida here. Capernaum here, that's what I'm talking about. They crossed the northern tip of the sea here. They were intending to go to Capernaum, but they ended up in neighboring Gennesaret instead. Now, Gennesaret is not that far away from Capernaum, as you can see on the map here what I just showed you. So when the crowd goes looking for Jesus in Capernaum next... In John chapter 6, word travels fast from, from neighboring Gennesaret, and they all go flocking to Gennesaret. We'll talk more about that next week. Mark says that when Jesus climbed into the boat, then he climbed into the boat and the wind stopped. They were totally amazed, for they still didn't understand the significance of the miracle of the loaves, what he had just done before this. Their hearts were too hard to take it in. Both last week's miracle and this week's miracle had the same exact point that Jesus was trying to get across to the disciples. The problem was that they didn't let what they should have learned about Jesus at the miracle of the feeding of 20,000 people affect what they were thinking in the middle of the storm they now found themselves in. They were still just as fearful, just as worried, and just as terrified as if nothing had just happened on the hillside outside of Bethsaida. Maybe you walked away from the message last week, emboldened by the power of the Holy Spirit, to pray about your impossible and terrifying situation, and trust God, trust His plan, trust His timing with it. Or maybe you missed being with us last week and Monday morning came. The situation you have been in hasn't changed and you went right back to being fearful or worried about what you're going through. Or maybe you now find yourself in a different, but just as worrisome and fearful of a situation than before. And like the disciples, Everything we looked at in Jesus' word last week was completely forgotten in the midst of that scary situation. Similar to what we talked about last week, not only may you be experiencing an impossible situation, but in, taken in connection to this week's passage, that impossible situation may be terrifying, The storm of life you're experiencing right now is downright scary. The waves are crashing against you, tossing you to and fro, and the wind is blowing you off the course God wants you to be on. You are worried and flat out terrified. It may be a bleak medical report out of nowhere. It may be a painful health condition with no end in sight. It may be a health condition that has stumped the doctors and no one has any answers about where you go from here. It may be an expense that there are just no funds for. It may be staggering debt. It may be the recent loss of a job. It may be the threat of eviction or foreclosure on the horizon. It may be the loss of a loved one that has shaken you to the very core. It may be a loved one that has been on the wrong path of life for years, one that appears to not end well. It may be a marriage that's on the rocks and you don't know what the future holds. It may be a loved one whose salvation of their souls doesn't look like it will ever happen. It may be general fear about what's going on in the country and in the world. It may be fear of the future and how it affects It will affect you and your family. These are just simply terrifying storms of life. Jesus is saying to you right now, I am. I am. Do not be afraid. Don't forget what we talked about last week. And don't forget what we're talking about right now, like the disciples did. As modern day disciples of Jesus, we can trust that He is pleading for God's mercy to be upon us in these different raging storms of life. And we can trust that Jesus is teaching us something through these storms, just as Jesus was once again testing the faith of His disciples in the midst of the storm they were dealing with. And when Jesus is done teaching us what He wants to teach us in that storm, and has grown our faith to the level he wanted to grow our faith in that storm, and has increased our trust in God that much more in that storm, he will bring it to an end. Ultimately, what storm we're battling right now, we can rest assured that at the end of all of it, whatever storm is at the end of our lives, Jesus will instantly stop it when he calls us home. So really, it doesn't matter what the storm is, how big the storm is, or how terrifying the storm is. Our heart and mindset must always be the same. Do not be afraid. We are children of God. And whatever happens to us in life, he has a purpose for. We are children of God. And like we talked about last week, nothing that happens to us in life is is for our harm. But Paul says in Romans 8... Everything that happens to us in life is for our spiritual growth, spiritual maturity, and therefore, our good. God wrote everything that he would allow to happen in our lives when he would intercede and when he would choose not to intercede in his book for our lives before he even uttered the words, let there be light. And God is good. God loves us beyond description so we can trust him and we can trust his plan for our good take jesus's words with you into the rest of your life never forget them but hold them at the forefront of your mind no matter what the storm of life is i am do not be afraid let's pray heavenly father we thank you for this famous story in your word, but something that still speaks to us today, speaks loudly to us today. I pray that no matter what the storm of life that is raging in our lives right now, that we will cling to those words straight out of your mouth, I am, do not be afraid. That we would hand that to you and we would trust you with whatever happens in that storm and because of that storm. We know that you work all things for our good, and so we will trust you with this, no matter how terrifying it is. Lord, I pray that you would give courage, you would give strength, you would give wisdom, you would give guidance to those going through these terrifying storms of life, that they can redirect their hearts and minds to those words. And make that their foundation. I am, do not be afraid. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand with me as we close out.